We've been talking about a community of oneness. And as we look in the book of Acts, we find that there are many lessons to be learned. One of which, of course, is prayer, continuing in the teachings of the apostles. And today we're going to look at a teaching that not only did they adhere to, but they adhered to it to the point where they'd be willing to give up their lives for the teachings of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank, we're thankful for this morning. We can open up your word in relative peace and relative safety. And Lord, as I share what's going on around the world around us and how persecution is very real, help us to see hope in the midst of persecution. Help us to see the Savior in the midst of suffering. Help us to see that you are right there with us, beside us, no matter what we are going through. And in the end, you will make everything right according to your will. Send the Holy Spirit to guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is entitled, Heaven Stands. And as that scripture reading portrayed, God stands at the right hand of the needy one. There are many people in our world today that we would consider needy. But of the, all the people that I consider, I think of the persecuted church the most. Even this very morning, if you look over and if you look in your websites, look up persecution.com, you will find our fellow believers in Iraq are suffering immensely. You find records and stories and newsreels of not just the ISIS terrorists and these other different groups and the individuals that were up, the Yazidi up on the mountain there, which by the way, they worship a fallen angel. They're not worshiping even uh, the Muslim faith. They're actually worshiping an angel who the Muslims call Satan. And it's interesting that we would send our airstrikes over there to save that religion, but at the same time, we are allowing Christians to literally be genocided, if you want to call it that. I don't want to call it, use the word genocide, but because of their faith, they're being driven out. Men, women, children being told at the point of a gun that if you don't renounce your faith or, and stay here and pay the tax, then you are dead or you better leave. And they go to pick up their wallet or their passport, and they say, no, you can't take that with you. Go. And then they see the women who, in that culture, they've got a wedding band, and they try to take the band off. They can't get it off, so they chop the woman's finger off. They just continue this brutality. They take one out of three daughters, if there's multiple daughters in the family. This type of persecution is ringing in our world, and yet we find very little being reported about it. It's saddening. And it's sickening that there's no comment about those Christians, two-thirds of which have fled since 2003. Christians of all denominations have fled, two-thirds of them since 2003, many of which now are fleeing for their lives. And yet we find, how many of you saw any reports about that? They're mentioned kind of as a little word, Christians, sometimes on the evening news. But we give more press to the other groups that are fleeing. The Islamic State is telling them, pay flee or die. Give up your faith and you can live. Now, we're not facing that, are we? Revelation 13 describes eventually it gets to that point, even in the United States. But what would you do if somebody held that gun to you, your head, and said, give up your faith or die? That's what a young person asked me one time. They said, if someone held a gun to your head and said, renounce Jesus or die, what would you do? Well, today, we're going to look at an individual who literally had that type of situation presented before him. 
We're going into the book of Acts because today we know many Christians are suffering in that 1040 window. Many Christians are wanting to live out their faith and yet they do it at such a huge price. Would I be willing to suffer? Would I be willing to give the ultimate price? And if I did, where would my resource be coming from to endure that? By the time we're done here today, you'll see a heavenly resource that will guide you, just like it guided the people in the first century, just like it's guiding the Christians in Iraq and other places today. And the setting is the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. The church, if you look in this chapter, has grown rapidly. Imagine going from 120 to thousands. And those individuals, if you look in your Andrew's study Bible or other Bibles, you'll find in there a description of where those Christians began to disperse to. They began touching the ancient Near East world. Some of them began staying around that area. And as we know, their problems resulted with huge growth, which will happen here eventually too. If you grow that fast, you're going to find needs coming up in the church the likes of which all the, the pastors couldn't deal with all of them, so they began to say, okay, guys, we need to have the deacons deal with this, and these people deal with that. They began to appoint people to deal with the physical needs of the church. And some of those individuals didn't just keep their ministry in that vein, that way of thought. They began to preach. They began to do miracles. Stephen is one of them. Philip's another one. They're going everywhere. They're preaching the gospel as well as ministering to the needs of the widows and the poor in the church. They're going out doing the ministry of Jesus. And we go to Stephen. And Stephen finds himself really in a situation where it's, do you truly believe this? And yeah, it's kind of a court situation. But the idea is, if you truly believe this, are you willing to give your life for this? And instead of allowing the circumstance to overwhelm him, instead of becoming critical or bitter in the situation, he finds a resource, a resource that empowers him to tell the people, it's not me who's on trial here today, it's you. And he convicts them and tells them, you are on trial and judgment is against you. Acts chapter 7, verse 2, and he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That's quite a journey, isn't it? Launching out by faith, taking what few possessions you have and just going. More than a few weeks, (laughs) camping trips and all of that. And Oshkosh, we've heard those stories. Great stories. Imagine taking everything you own and just heading out. Some people do have that reality even here today. And that's where Abraham goes. He goes where God calls him to go. Later on, we find this speech of Stephen not only includes Abraham, this man of faith, who's willing to give his only son to this God. He trusts him so much that he's willing to sacrifice his son's life here on this earth in order to fully trust God and serve him. Goes from Abraham to Isaac. Eventually, you get down to Joseph, who's in prison for his faith. Moses, who's right there speaking to the people, and they won't even listen to him. Stiff-necked people, we find the words recorded. And then we find him pointing out there was supposed to be a coming prophet down in verse 37. And that coming prophet, who does Stephen think it is? One who'd be like Moses? It's Jesus. And then you go on down, and Stephen brings out a witness against them that they see every day, every sacrifice. That's that temple where they bring the land, that temple where they bring the offering, that temple. It stands against them as a witness that says, what are you doing anyway? Here's the Messiah. He came into this very temple. 
Stephen is going down through his speech, and you think as you read the speech, well, I sure wish I could come up with a speech like that during a time of trial and persecution. It almost seems just an amazing orator going on there. Well, we forget, first of all, that they had minds that memorized huge portions of the stories in the scriptures, an oral tradition. And we also forget that in the Greek training system and all of that, you would have some rhetoric and you would have orators who could go for hours, not just 30 or 40 minutes, hours giving speeches, the likes of which you would even be able to stay in tune with all the way through all of that. And at the end, they would say, here is the conclusion. Imagine that. This is the type of people we have that we're talking about. So it's not a phenomenal thing. It's not like you say, well, I could never do that. Yes, you could. The Holy Spirit could give you those words at that time and even in that speech. And so there's the temple witness that he calls against them. And you go on down through here and you say, man, this is more than just a speech. And the thought occurred to me, it's more than just a speech. And I went to Prasky, Adventist Theological Society. Lots of good articles there on the internet you can get. Download them for free. And he's commenting on this and he's saying, that he watched William Shea's interpretation of Stephen's speech, and he's agreeing with this commentator. So I've got, in essence, two commentators here who are saying there's something more to this speech than just the Holy Spirit guiding him to give a whole history. There's something more to it. He says Shea studied Mendenhall, and Mendenhall was the one who studied the covenants of the ancient Near East, including the Sinai Covenant and the Suzerain Treaty. And in those treaties, when a king would conquer a people, he would have them enter into a promise with him, and he would promise them protection in exchange for their support. And if they failed to provide the tribute and everything he asked for, then he didn't have to protect them anymore. In fact, he would probably come in and destroy their city. Nebuchadnezzar is an example of that. I'm not sure if there's an example of a treaty between him and Israel, but he was over those areas that he conquered, and then when they failed to pay tribute or rebelled against him, he would come down upon them. The destruction of Jerusalem is evidence of that. But these ancient kings, when they would conquer city-states, these city areas, they would go into these promises with them and say, I will protect you. In exchange, you will do this. That's what we call a suzerain treaty. And there was always oaths and bonds. And this treaty, or covenant, had basically six elements. There was a preamble which said, here's the king. There's the prologue which describes how the king has behaved to you in the past. Uh, the third thing was the, there's the stipulations that now you are under my rule and this is what you need to do. Number four, there's provisions for a deposit in the temple. In other words, there, this covenant would be read periodically and it would be placed in the temple. Number five, there would be witnesses to the covenant. And number six, the blessings and curses would come to the one who's being ruled if they did not follow the covenant. And these people are looking at the speech of Stephen. They're saying, huh, interesting. He's covering the history of the nation. He's covering how the promise has come down. He's coming and showing eventually he's going to get to the point where he says, this is what's going to happen to you since you're not obeying God. And these commentators are saying Stephen's speech is more than just uh, somebody who grew up knowing the stories regurgitating. It's coming at these people like a lawsuit from God. And God is saying, you've done something more than forget history. You've broken the covenant. And we continue on. There's a whole lot there. The commentator concludes, Shea argues the prophets sometimes use the Hebrew word rib, whose best translation is probably covenant lawsuit 
to express the idea of God bringing before a court an action against his people because of their violation of the covenant. That is what they're saying Stephen is doing. They think they have Stephen on trial, and Stephen says, no, actually, I'm speaking for God. You are on trial. Helps you understand why they close their ears and gnash their teeth and get mad at him. It's more than just a regular speech. And so I found parallels as I looked between those six areas in the, in the speech of Stephen. I don't have time to go into all of those, but it seems very clear to me that Stephen comes as the last prophet to the nation of Israel. And as he comes, imagine an ancient king who's had a people disobey him and go against him. He's going to put down a rebellion. He's going to tell them where they've gone wrong. Imagine the king of the universe coming and he's not going to come himself. He's going to send a human being to tell them, you have broken this covenant. You need to turn back to me. You've gone astray. Stephen comes representing the king, not an earthly king, but the king telling Israel that they are being judged. That's why he gets so harsh at the end. You say, why did he get so harsh? He was going through all this history, and bang, he hits him with this stiff-necked word. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, whoa, and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Hint, you're persecuting me, and I'm speaking on God's behalf. And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, who Stephen believes is Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. That's really the end point. You find here there's lots of other words, but he's pointing out the main violation besides everything else is you even killed the Messiah. He even sent the Messiah to you. So imagine all of this evidence building up, and you're listening to it, and Stephen says, sorry guys, you're guilty. You need to turn. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. I hope that he never says this to us as individuals or as a people. But he said it then. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth. Descriptive element there. The, the video camera goes from Stephen there giving the speech to now all of a sudden the reaction. And there they are. Mm, they're just angry. And that's why we, our prophecy is true. Can I have a deacon go check and see if there's something going on in there? I thought I heard something, if, unless it's the air conditioning. Air conditioning? Okay. This proves that the end point of our 490-year prophecy is true. Because now Stephen comes as the last prophet, not just because we arbitrarily chose that end date, but because it's right there in his speech. He comes as the last prophet, and if you notice, he doesn't call them to repentance at the end. Like, like Peter did in the, in the previous verses. You find Peter calls in repentance, and they're baptized. Stephen comes along, and we find there's no call to repentance. It's just, you are guilty to the leaders of the nation of Israel. Time is over with. The covenant has been broken. And because of that, now God is going to take this to another people. So it's the end of the 490 years that we know of. And it's not like Stephen's saying, that's it. There's no more mercy for the world. He's saying, as far as a nation, it's over with. Your missional covenant, you were the ones who were supposed to usher in the Messiah. You've killed them instead. God is done. He is now, can save you. 
You can be part of his saving covenant. But as far as his missional covenant, that's why Paul and them say it's gone to other people. And so you're, that's why Jesus also mentioned your temple is left to you desolate. It will be destroyed. Acts is written around 64, 65 A.D., we think. And this is before the destruction of Jerusalem. If this was circulated to any length of time, it would have gone to people, and they would have seen the speech and said they would have had ample opportunity to repent, but they did not. Eventually, the city is destroyed. Israel, who valued their temple more than God, receives the last prophet's words, but they do not accept them. And yet Stephen still points them to Jesus in these two scenes. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, began gnashing their teeth, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. Isn't that a nice picture? Here you have these two scenes. We saw two scenes last time where we had those who received the Holy Spirit and those who ridiculed the Holy Spirit. We had that pneumophobia, that fear of the Holy Spirit we talked about. The Holy Spirit's going to work in ways that we haven't planned for. That's what we were talking about in response to prayer and to fulfill the mission. And so that's what we found last time. Those were receiving it. They were speaking in different languages. People were being converted. And then everybody said, oh, yeah, they're drunk. Quite a contrast, huh? And now here in Stephen's story, you have another contrast. There's the man who, I don't know if he's in chains or not, but here he is on trial. He's been imprisoned. You find he's going to eventually be stoned. He has peace in his heart, and not only that, but on his countenance. And then you've got those who are angry, gnashing their teeth, shouting, eventually shouting him down. And it's during that time that I see where he got his peace. It says in verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opening up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, rushed upon him with one impulse. Different kind of one accord, right? Different kind of oneness. That's what our world offers. It's this real impulse, fear-driven type of mob mentality. They rush upon him. And he, once again, two scenes. The camera focuses on his piece, and he's looking up, and he sees the Son of Man, and you could see them just getting angrier and angrier and, and just getting ready, and then all it's going to take is one of them to start it, and they rush forward to grab this guy. They're gonna eventually going to drag him outside of the city. They're eventually going to put him up on a high point. They're going to take a huge rock and throw it into his stomach and growing area. Then they're going to take the witnesses and begin to pelt him with stones at the, the ones who first bear witness. He's going to be, have stones piled up to the point and eventually, we have modern descriptions, someone's going to take a huge stone and as the stones are piled up, his head is left, they're going to crush his head. That's a modern way of doing it anyway. I don't know if that's exactly how they did it then. We do have some records of it. And so they are eventually going to go to that. But during that, imagine you having to face that you could stand it because you knew heaven is standing with you. You could stand it because you knew that the one that you believed in was not dead, but he was alive. He's not only alive, he is in heaven. He's not only in heaven, but he has power for you. He's not only having power for you, but he's coming again. That's Stephen's friend. And I wondered to myself, why would they be so enraged other than the fact that he sounded like a prophet? I found six verses. We'll go through them quickly. We find in Deuteronomy that they were not standing before the priests. They were actually standing before the Lord. And who was a malicious witness? It was those priests and all of them. They were not really the judge then. They were disqualified from judging. And so Stephen's case was not being decided by earthly human hands. It was being decided by the hands of God, in the court of God. And so when the human element failed, who's the ultimate judge? God. When our courts fail, when our human leaders go astray, we still have a leader, we still have a court, we can still hold fast to that and appeal to that. 
We've got a lot better things to do. Not that we shouldn't oppose earthly things like that, but we've got a lot better things to do with our time than to focus all of our time on that. We have someone who we can appeal to. And go on to another one, Second Chronicles. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, or Jehovah. I saw Jehovah sitting upon his throne, all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. So who's sitting? The Lord, right? Yahweh. He's sitting, and the ones who attend to him are standing. So he normally sits, but now we find later on Jesus standing. That's why it says, at that time, great time of trouble, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, meaning he had been sitting. Previous times in Daniel, the court sat. Okay, so he rises and rescues his people. We don't find Stephen being rescued, do we? But we do find someone standing saying, he is innocent, not guilty. Young people, here's your scripture for that answer. This verse here in Psalm 109. I always make sure there's one text we have to look up so you can't accuse me of spoon-feeding you. <laughs> You've got to figure out your Bible too. Psalm 109, 31. I had somebody complain one time I put too many scriptures up on the screen. So here it is, Psalm 109, 31. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor, speaking of the Lord, offering praise to the Lord. He, the Lord, shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Is Stephen being condemned? Yes, he's being condemned. Who's standing at his right hand? The Lord, Yahweh. And who does Stephen say it is eventually? Jesus, the right hand of the needy one. The needy ones are the ones experiencing injustice. The needy ones are the ones who earthly tribunals and all of that are not standing up for. These are the ones that Jesus stands up for. He is standing up for those people in Iraq right now, even when the governments are not. And eventually, he will orchestrate things to continue the work there as well. We ourselves can stand up as well for these people. So Jesus and God is the judge and by Stephen's side. Another text, Psalm 110, Part of our scripture reading, the Lord is at the right hand, at thy right hand. He shall shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. If you don't like the graphic nature of God at the end of time, where pretty much people are getting what they have wanted for other people, they wanted people to die. So in essence, God says, you will die. Okay. That's the ancient way of doing it. What you wanted evil on somebody else, if you were a malicious witness not telling the truth, that punishment will come back upon you. So that's what happens to the evil people, the ones who do not follow Jesus, and to the angels. It's not a camp you want to be in. But judgment against the nations. The Lord standing at the right hand. And they would take this to mean he's standing with Israel. But Stephen is saying, no, he's not. He's judging you like you're one of the nations who don't even know him. That could get them pretty mad, couldn't it? Then Matthew 24, remember Jesus? Jesus replied to them as they put him on trial, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they said, blasphemy, right? Claims to know the prerogatives of God, all of that. Stephen's words are echoing Jesus' words, and Jesus is not sitting like he told them they would be. He's standing, so something significant is happening there. He can't remain seated when the world persecutes his followers. He will not remain seated when you are going through 
issues and trials of life, when you are being persecuted for your faith, heaven will stand, as one preacher said, on tiptoe, peering into your situation, providing resources and encouragement that you don't even see. And so we have one on the throne whose angels serve him, who is the source of deliverance, who sits beside the Father, who is the judge. This is the one, our heavenly friend. This is the one who stands for us. Jesus stands not just for us, but it says, beside the needy one. He will not let you walk alone. You know, what loving parent is going to allow a child to face the things of this life and not hopefully try to be there for them? And yet, our heavenly parent, do we see less of him doing that? It could be a financial woe. It could be a family woe. It could be the things around you just overwhelming you, looking at the things coming upon the world, and he says, don't worry, I'm right there beside you. You are not alone in that situation. So today, we have this message. We're not alone. He stands beside us. And so there are those two realities. There is that persecution, yeah. We could focus on the fear, 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 fear. But you know, perfect love casts out all fear. So why are we focusing all on that? It's reality we need to be aware of. You can go to persecution.com and see more. But I want to focus on the privilege. The privilege of knowing that heaven is on my side. The privilege of knowing that I'm going and doing this not for myself. But when I leave that throne room of prayer with God, I'm leaving as an ambassador. I'm going to this world and I'm telling them, this is the king I serve. He's loving and altogether good. Because our assurance in Christ has to get stronger, doesn't it? This world's going to get wickeder and more wicked. So our assurance has to get stronger in Him. Otherwise, we're not going to stand. Otherwise, heaven, won't, heaven will stand, but we, don't, we find ourselves falling at the end of time. Revelation 13 is a very clear example of that. It's coming. Uh, if you just take a brief few moments sometime and just think about the course of this nation since you've known it as a young person. You will see that we are headed in a direction that is going to mimic and amplify what we find in the book of Acts beyond what we humanly can endure. We must then find a resource like Stephen did and say, I see him. He's right there with me. Great Controversy says there's another more important question that should engage the attention of the churches of today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer. Why is it then that, that it seems in great degree to slumber? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. This will happen again. Once we have the standard, we have Christ in our lives, not only that, we are turning to him daily. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles, including Stephen. Let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church, and the spirit, this spirit will be revived, excuse me, cross out the other, the spirit will be revived, and the fires will be rekindled. That will happen. Uh, we don't want to start the fire ahead of time, preempt it, do it ourselves. We want to live the godly life, to show people Jesus. And then that's going to be in direct opposition to what we see around us. Can you imagine a government gets to the point where they tell you that certain things in the Bible that you preach are no longer able to be preached? Can you imagine a government that says at a certain point, 
that there is a family day that we need to honor. And you are honoring it differently than the rest of the world, and therefore you will suffer. Can you imagine a government that says, your sign of faithfulness to God, not a ring that they take off with an axe or something like that, like ISIS does, but your sign of faithfulness to God must be removed because it's threatening the whole very fabric of what we are doing. Can you imagine a nation that says, in essence, you are a dangerous person, dangerous fellow, because you show some kind of questioning and reasoning ability. You do not have to imagine that. That is where we are in many countries around the world. They do not have the freedoms that you have because of those very principles, accusations being against them. Accusations that say, you are a Christian. We will mark an N on your house for Nazarene. Nazarite, Nazarene. That's what happened in Iraq. That's what happens in a lot of these places. And some of you know more stories than I do. But I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the idea of, am I doing what his will is for me right here at this time, in this place? Do I know him? Do I want to stand for him? Stephen knows all of this, and he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my breath. Down there in verse 59. He knows it's not going to go in his favor. He knows he's going to be killed for his faith, but he cries out and commits himself into the Lord, and he says, here I am. And then he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, it says he fell asleep. There he is, cradled in the arms of Jesus. There he is, trusting fully. And we know that stoning death is not easy. We know that he had to have this resolve to get through it and intense forgiveness. And was his prayers, those two prayers there, were they ever answered? Yes, they were. Saul was there. And he's the one we'll turn to eventually in the book of Acts and see that that seed of the life of Stephen was sown in his heart. And you know who else died along with Stephen? Early church records, or at least the tradition tells us, about 2,000 others died during that great persecution of Saul. 2,000. Those seeds were sown. The faithful stood for Jesus. They were not afraid and they trusted their heavenly friend during that. Do you trust him? And the world is soon going to end. Are we trusting him every day with our lives? Just the simple little things now will add up to a bigger decision later. Am I trusting him? I hope the answer is yes to each one of us. That's why we're talking about this community of oneness. Because in order to look forward with faith, we as a community have to put away the fears and say, you know what? We're trusting Jesus. He's the one we're trusting. Yes, the world may seem to be going just blazing forward into flames, but we are going to be trusting Jesus. Heaven stands on our side. Each one of us, and then us together, imagine that, united together, heaven standing with us. That's how we can have blessed assurance. That's how we can say Jesus is mine. That's how we can say, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm going to invite the pianist to come and play that song because the newspaper is going to keep getting darker, but the light of Jesus and his word will keep shining brighter and brighter, and I want that assurance for me and for you and for the world around me. If you'd like to stand that and sing that song, please do.
blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. May that be so for each one of us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.